right, ready? Yep. Hey, murder lovers, my name is Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. I actually like the Senesa thing. I remember that from The Simple Life. And then Bailey Sarian started doing it on right. her makeup, murder, mystery, makeup, Monday, whatever. <laughs> I have the order of that wrong. I know yep. I do. Um, and it takes me back every time. I never watched The Simple Life. Oh, it was hilarious. So for me, it was a Bailey thing until after I learned it was a Simple Life from thing. Simple Life thing. Yeah. So. They used to frolic through the fields singing that. I was like, how cool. little ode to... The Simple Life. The Simple Life. That show was so Quite funny. literally. But like when times were simpler and you could wear low jeans and... Oh God. Don't bring those days back though. <laughs> Juicy couture tracksuits. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, to be alive in the early 2000s. Early 2000s. All right. Um, okay. So... Today's episode is brought to you by a Patreon suggestion. Boop, boop. Boop, boop. Um, so this is Tina. Um, she sent us an email with a suggestion. I'm going to read you her email, and then I'm going to go straight into the case. All right. So this is an uh, email from Tina. It says, hello, murder lovers. My name is Tina. I found your show last summer. I love listening, but got a little behind due to my current workload. I teach preschool, and I own a wedding event rental business. Are you local to me? I would like to work for you, Tina. <laughs> Fatina's dream, dream is to job. be a wedding planner. <laughs> dream job. It says, I want to bring a case with some recent developments to your attention. It happened over 20 years ago in a town about 30 minutes from where I live. Though there are twists and turns, there is a conclusion. I know that's important to Mackenzie. <laughs> it is. It's very important to me. <laughs> So I held off on doing Josh Duggar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It says, I know if you choose to do it, you will do a great job pulling it all together. I look forward to hearing your take on the case. Thanks so much for all the work y'all do to keep us weirdos entertained. Stay murdery, Tina. Thanks, Tina. (laughs) Thanks, Tina. And she also sent us some wiki links, um, which took me straight into a nosedive into the dark hole that was this case. So, yep. This is the David Cam case, and it does have a conclusion, but it's going to be a roller coaster ride all the way to the end. So, starting back to a little bit of history on David, because I in this one, it is semi, it is important. Um, when there is history to know, it's better that you know it so you can make a, you have an overall view on everything. So, David Cam, born in Indiana. Uh, he started, um, his father and his uncle were both very pious. Uh, his dad was a pastor and they were founders and pastors at a local church there in Georgetown, Indiana. And that is kind of the path that he wanted to follow. In the early, in the mid eighties, he met a girl, um, who he had, sex with out of wedlock <laughs> oh no yeah and of course that was going to be frowned upon and fortunately unfortunately i mean of course a little bundle of joy was brought on by this oh, she situation got but of she course. was pregnant um and the only way that he could kind of make right with his community and be um you know a, a 
right, like a good citizen to his community was get married with her. Right. So he got married. Um, they, you know, it's kind of a shotgun wedding at this point. So not, it's not going to be the greatest of starts to a marriage in any situation. Right. They try and do it before they're showing. Right. So nobody knows that. So they had a little girl. And um, at this point, they were married for a couple of years. He started doing auxiliary work for the local state troopers, which I didn't know that you could volunteer to be a police guy. Uh, Apparently you can. In small towns, that makes sense. I think so. I think it's a small town type of thing. Um, I don't think you could do it here in big city like Portland. No. <laughs> They're going to be like, here's a badge and here's a, here's a gun. Go for it. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I, I don't know if it's just like citizen's arrest that they could do because they're not sworn in officers. So right. um, nonetheless, he that's what he wanted to do. And that's because his uncle was, uh, was also part of those state police. So he wanted a career type thing to start for him right so he started doing that volunteering for the local police and eventually the marriage with his first wife fizzled out they just weren't compatible in the long run and at that point he had full custody of their girl and he moved in with his parents Um, eventually his parents took full custody of the kids so he can continue on trying to be a police officer, like actually take the test and whatnot to go through the academy and actually become a police officer. Although they, and they separated in early 88 and in 88 again, he went on a blind date with a girl named Kim. This is a girl he, who he had actually gone to high school with, but because they were one year apart, she was one year younger, they had never actually crossed paths. Um, and so they said that even on their first date, it was love at first sight kind of thing. So they really fell for each other right off the bat. Okay. And by 1989, so one year after they had met, they'd actually gotten married. And soon after, he got actually sworn in to be a police officer. And although he was quiet and reserved up until that point, his family said that the moment he got sworn in, he kind of got this arrogance about him. He changed his whole personality, that this badge was this thing that completely changed him. He Mm -hmm. was um, just... Uh, what's another word for arrogant? Drunk on power. He Yes, that is a great way to put it. He was drunk on power. He liked the badge. And soon after, his family started growing with Kim. They had their first child. Uh, first name kid was Brad. And early on in that marriage, he started stepping out. He started cheating on Kim with women that were... Um, I guess uh, this is something that I had never heard of, badge bunnies. Oh, they're like homie hoppers. Yes, exactly. um, Or um, what what do they call them with with jocks? Uh, Um, Not basketball wives. uh, No, there's a a term. But yeah, they... Or uh, buckle bunnies are the ones that go after cowboys. Oh, yeah. Is there a bunny for everything? Yeah, yeah, totally. What's a crime bunny? I want to be a crime bunny. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, if you're a crime bunny, does that mean that you're going after people that commit crimes? Mm, No, after cute podcasters like us. (laughs) (laughs) You're married, first of all. (laughs) Second, somebody tell me what that is because I'm single. (laughs) 
I'll be the wingman crime bunny. Um, so he started doing this uh, thing where he would use his power, use his badge. Some women were badge bunnies where they were mm-hmm. seeking someone that was an officer and in uniform. But he also, come to find out, was using his power when he pulled over women. And when he was going to like give someone a ticket, he would like take them down to this like place where all the cops took down women or people to have sex or to have some sort of inappropriate relationship. This is like that movie. Have you ever seen the Nicolas Cage movie, Bad Lieutenant? No. I, it's the only movie in my entire life I've ever turned off. Oh. It was so gross. Weird. He is a cop that does that. And he basically like forces women to have sex with him to get out of them, for them to get out of like a stop. Yeah. That is so disgusting. So he was using this power that he had over these women to some extent and some were, um, Jersey chasers. That's the word. Jersey chasers. Jersey Ah, chasers. basketball. Sorry. My brain just all of a sudden (laughs) came up with it. Um, so Eventually, he started having more long-term relationships with some of these women. Mm. And on, with on one occasion, there was a woman that he had actually brought to his house. And his wife, Kim, almost walked in on them where, like, the girl had to go out the back door. He had to get ready really quick. And he was like, I'm cutting it too close now. It's dangerous waters. So he actually confessed to Kim, hey, I've been stepping out. I've been cheating on you. And... When he wanted to call it quits, unfortunately, well, again, it's one of those things. Fortunately, unfortunately, Kim announced that she was actually pregnant and she was five weeks pregnant at this point. So there was really no dissolution at that point. Mm -hmm. They kind of went apart for a couple of months, but they came back together by the time that the baby was born. And by the time that the baby was born, it seemed like things were on a right track again. And he unfortunately kept doing it he kept stepping out um he was just that was his that was his thing that's what he liked doing when he was some people are not built for monogamy no and at that point um when the they had a little girl named jill um he did step down he resigned from being a police officer and he wanted to actually be part of the family business, which was, I believe, some sort of mechanic or something like that, where he was going to put more time into that. It was normal work hours because he wanted to spend more time at home. Okay. That's what he said. That's why he resigned. And at that point, what happened was um, life seemed to be back on track. Everything was outwardly it seemed okay so the family's doing good they had like i said his dad his uncle at this time was a pastor at the georgetown local church the church was no more than four minute drive from their home and again really small town and the place that they actually moved into was lachlan lane and where they moved into was a piece of property where like other family members had houses on. So like if you go down the specific road, it's all one family type of thing. So they actually lived next door to an uncle, I believe an uncle and an aunt. So every, um, once a week, David would go into the church to play basketball, play a pickup game with other guys at the church. 
And one of the guys was his uncle who was a pastor at the church. It usually started around 7.30 in the evenings and it took a couple hours. They played a couple pickup games. And on this specific day, Kim, around 7 p.m., had two things to do. She was going to drop off David at a basketball... I'm sorry. She was going to drop off Brad to swim practice and pick him up and then also take uh, Jill, the little girl, to a dance class and pick her up. And... David had gone to basketball, and so he went to basketball. Nothing's off there. There's 11 people at the game, and that becomes very important. And then when he pulls back into his house, he's in his work truck. It's marked as a work truck. It has the logos on it and everything. As he's pulling up to the garage door, he sees that it's open, and he sees a trail of blood coming out from the garage. Oh, no. He says that he first sees what he thinks is Jill on the ground and thinks, oh, she probably fell out of the car trying to get out. And the car that Kim normally drove was a black Bronco, and it was inside the garage. And as he got closer, he realized it was his wife, Kim. Covered in blood, completely lifeless. He looks in the in the back seat because at this point he's in a panic. He's thinking, "Where are my children?" Mm-hmm. He looks in the back seat, and he sees Brad is sprawled out, like halfway reaching towards the front seats, mm-hmm. and he looks lifeless as well. And little Jill is still in her car seat, shot. So Kim had been shot and they had all been shot, but Jill and Kim had been shot execution style. And little Brad had a shot to his chest, to his torso. Okay. And because he did not see the same wound that he did on the girls, he thought that there was a moment of maybe I can help Brad. So he took him out of the car and immediately started doing CPR. While he's doing this, now, mind you, because he had this history of being in the state police, he didn't call 911. He called straight to the command post, which is the call that eventually goes from 911 to a command Mm -hmm. post on who to dispatch. So he called directly to the source and said, I quote, get everybody out here to my house now. My wife and kids are dead. And someone responds, and they're talking by first names because they know he knows who he's talking to. And the guy says, Oh, it's going to be okay. He hasn't like really sunk in what David is saying. And David is saying, No, they are dead. Someone needs to get out here to my fucking house now. So you can hear the panic in his voice. And of course, this phone call is dissected later, right? Mm -hmm. And when they get to the house, To set up the crime scene so you can visualize it, Kim is laying out by the driver's seat. And the girl is, uh, Jill is in her car seat and David is, or sorry, and Brad is out on the passenger side. That's where David took him out of to do CPR. So, bloody mess, of course. Um, He's still in his workout clothes. He has a t-shirt and 
almost like sweatpant type material shorts on. Mm-hmm. This is, and I'm sorry, I failed to mention the date. It's on September 28th, 2000. And what happens then is, of course, they, they secure the crime scene. And something really important is two, three things of, of evidence that are really important. There is a sweatshirt in the back seat of the Bronco. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to that. There is a handprint on the passenger side on what is called the eye pillar. So the section between the driver door and the passenger door, that metal piece. Picture it as if someone would have put their hand in to hold themselves while they look into the car. Okay. There's a palm print there. And then on the passenger side of the car, on the roof, are Kim's shoes. They are together. They're facing the back of the car. And they're kind of like thick heels shoes. Okay. Okay? And Kind of like she put them up there while she was getting in or out of the car. On the passenger side, though. And she's on the driver's side. Okay. So that's why it's important. Got it. So somebody else would have had to... So someone hmm. else would have had to put those shoes on the passenger side roof. And they're together. Right. They okay. look very deliberate on the roof. Like, they're they're together. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, of course, they're investigating this as, let's look at the spouse first. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the first thing that they're going to do. Always. That is protocol... I 100% yes look at the spouse first is there an alibi in this situation there's 11 witnesses that put him at the church playing this pickup basketball game okay right they said that they all got there at around 7 7 7 to 7:30 everyone was rolling in and they started warming up and by like 7:40 they started their first game they had three games total and everyone that was there can swear up and down he was here for the warm-up and the first game. The second game he set out, but he was he played the third game. And I even had to ask Kara this, and I know this is dumb. I, sh- I could have just Googled it, but I was like, how many people play basketball? Because <laughs> I don't know shit about basketball. <laughs> yes, it's 10. Five so- per team. She's like, it's 10 and maybe, like, one alternate, right? If mm-hmm. they're playing just at a church game. And one of them was the uncle who wasn't really playing. He was just there to, like, open the doors, turn on the lights, et cetera, et cetera. So it was everyone playing at any given time. Mm-hmm. There was – so if someone – if one of the people that would have been on the court were missing, it would have been noticeable. So I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You wouldn't have been You would have noticed it. Right. And then – um, so the police took him into the station three days after the murders to interrogate him. Like I said, protocol, they're interviewing the spouse. And this is all on recording. This guy is very emotional. And again, he knows everyone that's interviewing him and mm-hmm. they know him. Right. So it's all, um, it's got this casualness to it of like hey everybody's on what's going on exactly so he's sitting there and everyone's like hey man well you're the spouse like did you leave between the games did you go to your house and kill them and then go back to the game and 
it's a four minute drive, so it's kind of feasible mm-hmm. um, that there would have been some kind of time, some time lapse where it could have fit. But everyone's saying he's at the basketball game. Now, what the prosecution ended up doing is that those first three days when they did the autopsy, the person that performed the autopsy actually confirmed that there was trauma, blunt force trauma to Jill in her private areas to the five-year-old. Oh, oh God. Yeah. So then they accused him of that as well. And he is sitting there yelling at them, slamming his hand on the table like, no, you are looking down the wrong lane. I could not have done this. I, why would I kill my family? And then they started discovering all these allegations of sexual misconduct that he had while he was on the force and just this, these extra marital affairs that he had. Cause they were out here thought and bopping. Yep. So they charged him. They charged him and there was one piece of evidence that they absolutely clung to, which was the shirt that he was wearing on the bottom left-hand side. If he's wearing it on the bottom left-hand side, there is some specks of blood that they believe are high-velocity splatter. Okay. And the only way that they think high-velocity splatter would have gotten on that shirt would have been if he actually shot them. But he was playing a contact sports game. Yes. No blood at the game, though. So, but he did try CPR on his... Son. He held his wife. He CPR'd his son. And so they were saying that the forensic analyst that did this was saying it was high-velocity blood splatter. There's no way about it. They They are closing that coffin. That's what it is. That's what it is. And so they took him to trial. And he was convicted for all three murders and was given 195 years. But that's not where this story ends. That is not where this story ends. Otherwise, Tina would not have sent it to us. (laughs) She knows us a little too well. (laughs) So he was convicted to 195 years. Okay. Now, he maintained his innocence through and through. Right. And a couple years later, he actually got a different attorney who wanted to back him up and said, hey, the things that happened in the first trial were not right. They brought in 12 different women during the first trial to back up his adultery stories and his history on that. And because the prosecution is thinking that there was some kind of argument between him and Kim and that's why he ended up shooting everyone because he wanted to go be an adulterer or go be out with someone else. And all of his girlfriends showed up and were like, no, he doesn't need to do all that. So they all said that, you know, once they started getting any type of serious or anything or immediately when they found out that he was a married man with a family, they all broke it off. And I mean, obviously not always amicable, but for the most part, they're like, nope, broke off completely. There was never, yeah. like, another chase or anything. Um, so the second trial was where this new attorney was like, hey, can we have a new trial? Not introduce that evidence. And then the second piece was, if you're going to accuse my client of sexually abusing his kid, prove it. 
That's right. Yeah. You can't just go out and say these things without without proving it. Um, And he, of course, said he had no knowledge of anyone else possibly sexually abusing the little girl um, or of anything else. And the prosecution and the first trial was saying that it was their theory that Kim found out about him abusing his own kid. And that's how that fight started that night. So when police make up theories like that, just like out of nowhere, they just like make up this whole story. It's bizarre to me that that's okay. Yep. And then the, there's some neighbors that is not, they didn't even testify. They just, these are just witness accounts that the police gathered, said that they heard some shots right around 930, which is when he got home. Um, and the coroner put their time of death at eight, which completely disproved their, their theory that he had left the gym, gone home, done it, gone back, um, because he was for sure at the gym at eight because of the first game. Uh-huh. And... So he got a second trial and that one didn't go any better. Nothing changed. And it wasn't until this second attorney actually made the prosecution or the state prove their fucking case. So the sweatshirt that was found inside of the Bronco was a generic type gray sweatshirt that had in Sharpie written inside the collarbone, or in the collar, the word backbone. And they said, well, whose is this? And the police never tested it for DNA until the second trial. Because the defense forced them to. Said, you have this piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. Why won't you test it? And they said, well, we already had our guy. So that's why we didn't test it. Did you test the palm print? Well, yeah, we gathered it. They compared it to David. It's not David's. And then the high-velocity splatter on David's shirt, it was actually just the criminalist, so the crime scene photographer, who had no credentials to say... A blood blood splatter? splatter. Analyst or whatever. It was just him saying that. And he actually testified in the first trial as if he was a blood splatter analyst, which he was not. So So they convicted him based on everything circumstantial and nothing forensic. Yes. Yes. But the jury on the first one thought it was forensic. Because they just said, we found his handprint. We found the high velocity on his sweatshirt, on his shirt and whatnot, without actually proving that it was. But then also the defense should have said, like, should have been able to be successful in cross-examination. Like, what test did you run to determine that? Right. Like, wh- how do you know that? So, and the reason why this was so, it was very um, much in the news and it hit home for everyone because, you know, it's a small town, kids involved, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's a pious family. They're yeah. known for that. And so... I think it's one of those situations where the police dropped like 15 balls, like yeah. trying to put this case together. And then the jury, the community wanted some sort of closure as they to who have done it. Right. So it wasn't until they tested this DNA. They hadn't cross tested it with any other felons in the area whatsoever. 
that they actually found a match to the DNA that was on that sweatshirt. The sweatshirt came back to a DNA match with Charles Benet. It's Ramsey? spelled no. No, oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know. That's what I thought too when I first heard it. I was like, "What? No." Um, it's B O N E Y. Okay. So Boney. Bonnet. Bonnet. Sounds French. Just kidding. Um, so they found the match. This guy's actually a convicted felon mm-hmm. for sexual misconduct against women. Mm-hmm. He was previously known as the shoe bandit because he has a shoe fetish. <gasps> oh. Mm-hmm. The shoes. The shoes. The shoes. The shoes. Yes. So they they hunt him down. They yeah. interview him. And he comes up with this cockamamie story about how, yes, that is his sweatshirt. And it was at one point, but he must have donated it. And maybe that's where David picked it up at a donation bin. And that's how it ended up in his house. And they're like, mm, try again. Yeah. So he Unlikely. tried again. He ended up with like five different stories. The mo- the one that he sticks to the most is saying that he was contacted by David at one of the pickup games at the church, even though he couldn't name the church. And said because obviously this is all publicized at this point, right? So mm-hmm. he knows some things about David that he wouldn't have normally known. But he says that David contacted him trying to purchase a gun to kill his family and that he met him that night of the murder outside his garage and was about to sell him the gun. He handed over the gun and that David told him to wait outside. He went in, that David went into the garage, let out three pops, came back out, and Charles said he bolted. So... (laughs) Okay. <laughs> okay, Charles. Um, but knowing what we know about him having a shoe fetish, fetish, that tells me that he did it. 100%. Took the shoes off of her. Yeah. Um, shot everyone. And when he leaned in, that's when he probably put the shoes up on the roof, put his hand up on the eye pillar, went in and shot the kids. And right about that time... Which would match up with the neighbor saying they heard the pops around that same time, was that David almost walked in on him, and that's mm-hmm. why he left the shoes behind. Right. And so he maintains his innocence, saying that he has no involvement in the actual shooting. That it was David that was going to buy the gun from him to shoot his own family. So it wasn't until after 13 years that David was in prison for the murder of his wife and two kids that he was exonerated. And it was just recently where his whole record was expunged because it wasn't just not guilty. It was just like full no charges on him. Right. So it was everything was exonerated completely. But his Um, life is still destroyed. Oh, absolutely. Did he file a suit? You know, I don't know. I hope um, he does, if he hasn't already. He said, well, I, I saw a couple of the interviews of the post-interviews, um, and, it, and it breaks your heart because, you know, you always think, well, is it the system that got it wrong? At least until 
someone's exonerated, you're like, where's that twinge of maybe coming from, you know? Um, but he was very stoic and very just forthcoming of like, I did not do this. Right. I don't know why they're blaming me. Like, it's not me. Mm -hmm. The police missed this, this, and this. Like, it's not me. Um, and he said one of the first things he did that he, when he got out of prison was put on his wedding ring. And he went to go visit his kids and his wife at the cemetery. Mm. Yeah. So this guy sat in prison for 13 years and the police or the prosecution, the state, whatever you want to call it, had done this shitty job, I mean, of of doing an investigation. They yeah. had information right there with them, evidence right there, the palm print, the sweatshirt, you know, the, the shoes I can get hit or miss on that one because it's not, you yeah. know. But they literally convicted him because he was a crappy husband. Right. Not because he was a murderer. Right. It was the 12 women on the stand for the first trial and um, the sexual abuse allegations on the first trial as well that I'm sure would make anyone seem like a monster on the stand. Yeah. So they absolutely convicted him on that first one based yep. on that information. Like you said, it's weird because it's, now we know it's circumstantial, but they were taking it as fact on the first mm -hmm. one, as actual evidence. But come to find out, it was none of that. And they were just using this crappy excuse. Um, there was another thing they did, too, where they there was a phone call that was like at 7.09 uh, or 7.19, I forget the time, but that was made on his cell phone, like air quotes, made on his cell phone. And that was supposed to, they were alleging that it was him calling home to make sure that they were home and even th this is 2000 they had a verizon tech come in and they actually testified no that was a 609 call because of the time difference there's two different time zones in indiana so our servers say 609, that's when the call actually happened. So it was just the business call that he was making. It had nothing to do with him trying to figure out, trying to, you know, see if his family was home and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Plus, we know his family didn't get home till later because they had dance class, because we had swim classes. So I, this is just unfortunately another case where the police did not enough even though they had everything in front of them they prioritize closing the case versus solving the case right and it and it happens a lot with those high profile cases where yeah. they know eyes are on them yeah and they want closures yes and and especially with small towns they just don't like have the knowledge that too yeah they don't have the knowledge and there's too much of this like unwillingness to look to ask for help right yeah and they had the technology too at yeah. this point and i mean i think it's very telling too that the same person taking the pictures was seen as an expert in a completely different field yeah. because i'm sure there is some science that goes into taking the correct pictures yeah. the correct lighting but that's that's your That's thing, That's not dude. a blood splatter person. Don't go stepping on other toes and say you're an expert. Stay in your lane. Right. So, unfortunately, they did wrong by this guy, but now he's an advocate for people who are unjustly imprisoned or who have been exonerated, and he's Good. helping them get back on track with life. So, 
yeah, yeah, this was a hell of a roller coaster because I was like, no way he killed his family. Yeah. Um. Even from when I started reading, I was like, wait, what? He was at a basketball game. Where, yeah. where did that come from? Um. So it was um, definitely a roller coaster. Thanks for the suggestion, Tina. I really enjoyed researching this one. Yes. Um, and if you want case priority, which means like you have a case that you want to recommend that we will cover, you have to be on the murder lovers tier in our Patreon, which is linked below in like the show notes Cool for the podcast. So yeah. feel free to join and message us on Patreon and send us your case suggestions and we'll prioritize them. Yeah. This was a full on situation. Poor guy. Situation. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Tina. Bye. Bye.